The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The author of Hebrews says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This concept of falling into the hands of the living God being a fearful thing is all but vanished from the culture whose only verse that seems to be permissible to cite from the Bible is God is love. How can God is love coincide with the author of Hebrews saying it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. To come to a verse like that in Hebrews breaks the category of the definition of God for many. If God is love, how could it possibly be a fearful thing to fall into his hands? Our passage this morning may actually be like that for many of you. Perhaps you have fallen susceptible to the thinking of the rest of the world. And you look at the scene that transpires here in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel 6, where Uzzah reaches out and takes hold of the ark and perishes on the spot. And perhaps you think, why in the world does that happen? How can... How can something like that happen? God seems to overreact a little bit here, doesn't he? Maybe you've fallen susceptible to the thinking of the rest of the culture and wonder why God would take such a severe action with a man who seemingly did so little. In this passage, I want us to see two simultaneous, maybe paradoxical, realities about God. First is his unflinching seriousness about his own holiness and your sinfulness. His unflinching seriousness about his own holiness and your sinfulness. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second is the joyful worship that we, as his children, should have. Now, now, those two things seem to be at opposite ends of the spectrum, aren't they? If you're a child of a father who seems to, at a moment's notice, eviscerate a man for seemingly little, how can you also experience joy at being his child, knowing that it seems like the least little thing would set him off, right? So we've got to unpack that. How can both of those things be true? I don't know if you've ever had the, the privilege of observing a storm at a safe distance before. Maybe you've seen it from an airplane. You look out an airplane window and you look down at the clouds and you can see a storm below you and the lightning kind of going back and forth. And it's amazing, isn't it? Knowing that the pilot wouldn't dare fly through that, but above it, you're fine, Right? In, in the plains of Texas, in North Texas where I grew up, you, our, the city where we lived was right on a lake, and you could go sit at a, there's a restaurant that sits right on the lake, and we sat there from time to time and watched storms roll in from the west. You can see all the way to the Dallas buildings, which are 25 miles by road that way, but it's so flat, you can see them out there, and you see the storm rolling in. And it's a beautiful thing to watch, and at the same time, there's a bit of fear there, isn't there? A bit of fear going that thing can knock over a tree. And here I am, little old me, can pick me up and throw me. It's oddly comforting to be in a safe spot, but actually watch this thing that you know strikes fear into your heart. Let's remember where we have been in the books of First and Second Samuel. 
and, and not forget what's just happened because it's important that we understand the, the nature of this shocking surprise that David gets as they seek to take the Ark of the Covenant and lead it into Jerusalem. Remember in chapter 5, what we looked at just last week, Ishbosheth, who was the rival king, had been killed, and all of Israel comes to anoint David as king, and they're coming to serve him. So for the first time, really, all of Israel has been united under a monarch. Eh, kind of they were united under Saul, but never really experienced the kind of unity that they're now having under David. God has elevated his king to a place of prominence on the national stage. We saw last chapter Hiram, who is the king of Tyre, is sending stuff to David. The pagans, the Gentiles, are, are paying tribute to Israel's king. They're sending him goods and services. And, and there's, there's two or three really important victories that David even gets. He gets a victory in uh, Jerusalem over the Jebusites who are there in the city. And then he, has, he goes to battle twice with the Philistines, and he wins both times against the Philistines. First, he gets permission from the Lord. Go and attack them, and I'll give them into your hands. He does that. He gives the Philistines into their hands. The second time, he gets cooperation from God. God says, no, don't go to the front. Go around the back and sneak around from the backside on it, and then wait, and you'll hear the marching of the basically the armies of God, their footsteps on the treetops, and that's how you know I've gone out before you, and the victory is in your hand. So David has gone from victory to victory to victory. Go all the way back to 1 Samuel. Go, go back as far as we've known David. When did he experience a loss? I mean, David has gone from victory to victory to victory. Just, for just a second, put yourself in David's shoes. Imagine, just for a moment, you pray and you ask the Lord for favor, and he grants it nearly every time. You, you ask him for victory, and he says, just wait. You're going to hear the sound of my army marching on the treetops, knowing that I've given you victory in battle. He has anointed you as king over Israel, in spite of somebody else being on the throne. You've routed enemies in the field of battle. There's nothing that God has that he has not given to you. So just put yourself in David's shoes for just a minute. To say that the nation of Israel would be reeling from the favor that they have from the Lord would be an understatement. But David knows his role. He understands what purpose God has put him on the throne for. Remember what we said last week. What we discovered last week in the text is that the glory of God is the target. Yes, he's elevating King David, and all of the people are benefiting from the king being prominent in the world, from Israel being established through David. All of Israel is benefiting from that. But that's not the goal. The purpose of David's reign is to establish God at the center of Israel's existence and their worship. So David knows his role. The king is the chief servant of God, as it were. So once David comes into this position of prominence, what is he going to seek to do? Well, he's going to seek to put God right back in the middle of Israel's worship. And so he goes to do just that with this little matter of the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, the Ark of the covenant, not the boat that Noah floated on. That's a different ark, okay? The ark of the covenant is basically a box. And inside this box was the Ten Commandments, was Aaron's staff that budded, and a jar of manna from the wilderness wanderings. And so when the temple is built, the ark of the covenant is going to sit there in the Holy of Holies. Now, it's been a while since we've thought about the Ark of the Covenant because we haven't seen this thing appear on the scene since 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, where they have this victory, or they, they get the Ark back and they go and take it to the house of Abinadab. Now, do you remember how they came into possession of the Ark of the Covenant again? 
Remember, they brought it out to the field of battle against the Philistines, thinking it was going to be a good luck charm for them. And in fact, what happened was quite the opposite. God actually allowed the Ark of the Covenant to get captured by the Philistines. So the Philistines think they're hot stuff. They take it into their, into their territory and they put it into their temple. And do you remember Dagon is standing there opposite? Dagon, their God, is standing opposite of the Ark of the Covenant. They come in the next morning and Dagon's fallen over on his face, worshiping the Lord that's on the Ark. So they set him back up and they go out and then the next morning they come in and Dagon's fallen over and his head's been chopped off and rolled to the threshold and so now they're really concerned. But not only that, they all start to break out in tumors like they've got a nuclear bomb in their camp and so they start shipping it around to Philistine territory. You take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. And eventually like, we don't want this thing anymore. This thing is a curse. And so they put it on an ox cart and they send it back to the, the nation of Israel. And do you remember what happens when it comes up to Bet Shemesh, which is the town that it comes to? There were 70 men that look at this ark wrong, and they all die. The Lord kills every single one of them. So now the Jews are going, we, we don't want this thing either, do we? Well, all of a sudden they call Abinadab, who is in the city of Kiriath-Jerim, which here we see called Baal Judah. He comes down and he takes it, he draws the short straw and he has to put it into his house, right? So... Abinadab goes and takes it to his house, and it has been there since before the days of Saul. So David is now going to get it, and he's going to bring it back to the center of the Jewish experience there in Jerusalem as they worship the Lord. He's just had victories. The Lord's on his side. God and David are tight, right? Right? We're best buds, he and I. Could do no wrong. Everything's working right for me now. This is just the moment that we do this. Well, David is about to learn that God's holiness is not a trivial matter. God's holiness is not a trivial matter. So David starts out with about as much fanfare as you could possibly start off with. He grabs 30,000 of the noble, the good men from Israel, and he gathers them all together. They go down to Baal, Judah, Kiriath, Jerim, and they gather together. This is a parade that he's got set up. This is going to be a big spectacle. Everybody's going to watch this happen, bringing this ark in, and everybody's going to rejoice. But there's a careful reminder in verse 2. Look at it. It says, The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, now, that's a careful reminder from the author that this is no ordinary box, right? This isn't just a box. I know I, I, I described it as a box a minute ago, but it, it's more than that. The reason that this box sat in the Holy of Holies after Solomon builds the temple is because this box was consecrated so as to have the presence of God with it. Now, of course, remember, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. So I'm not saying that this box is God or that this box contained God. There's nothing that could possibly ever be created that would contain an omnipresent God. So God is not necessarily in this box or contained by this box. God is everywhere. Neither is the ark an idol. It doesn't represent God in that way. David explains it like this. I think this is a helpful way of understanding what the ark is. 1 Chronicles 28.2, King David, this is after he's coming to the end of his reign and Solomon is, is going gonna to commission Solomon to build the temple. And he says this, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. The footstool of our God describes the Ark of the Covenant. So essentially the way David conceives of this, the way he's understanding this for all of, really humanity, all of Israel, is understanding that God's presence is specially with the Ark as a footstool for God. If his throne is in the heavens, and the earth, the Bible says, is his footstool, the Ark of the Covenant is the precise place on earth where his feet rest. 
and that is inside the Holy of Holies in the temple, which to this point in 2 Samuel has not been built yet. So what would happen is the, the high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, taking the blood of the, sacrificed, uh, of the sacrifice and sprinkling it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, essentially on the feet of God, if you will, and thereby make atonement for the rest of the nation. So his feet were, his presence through his feet, if you will, were specially there to grant atonement to the rest of the nation. So he is said to sit above the cherubim, which are depicted on top of this box. So how do they carry this thing? Well, they got this fancy new cart, right? It's a really nice cart. It's a wonderful cart. Maybe it'd be, I don't know, made by Mercedes or something like that. It's a really nice gold-plated rims and everything. It's pretty. They're going to put this ark on top of it, and they're going to drive it down the road back to Jerusalem, and there's two sons of Abinadab that are driving it, Uzzah and Ahio. All right? Now, we pick up the story in verse 5 where tragedy is about to befall them out of nowhere, it seems. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. This passage often shocks people when they read it because, again, it seems like such a little act and such a big reaction from God. His anger, it says, is kindled against Uzzah for his error, and he struck him down there dead. Why did God get so angry over something that's seemingly so little? It seems like an overreaction from God. But, but let's pause for a second before we let these two guys off the hook here, and let's just do a little survey of what's happening. First, I want you to remember that the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be carried on poles. All right? The Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be carried on poles that were specially designed for it to slip through the rings. So you got priests in the back and you got priests in the front that are supposed to grab these poles and carry it. Well, Larry and Moe here decided that an ox cart would be better to put the Ark of the Covenant on and just usher this thing back into Jerusalem. Why? Ignorance? I don't know. Stupidity? Maybe. Second, the ark was never supposed to be touched. Ever was it supposed to be touched. We see this in Numbers 4.15. It says, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons are to carry. But you see, the real problem, the reason that they're not supposed to touch it, is that man is inherently sinful and God is holy. And he has consecrated these things to be in the temple in the midst of his holiness. And sinful man should never come up and touch these holy things. You understand, this is an act of mercy from God to man. Don't touch it or you'll die. It's merciful to God, to, from God to warn them, if you touch these things, you will die. The reason that they'll die is because they're sinful. Now, you might ask, well, how holy is God and how sinful is man? Touch the ark and find out. This is what happens. What is it that takes place when sinful man comes in contact with holy God, physical contact with the holy God? Uzzah is the explanation of that. Touch the ark and find out. Now, you might think to yourself, 
and presume upon the holiness of God. We don't really need poles, do we? I mean, don't you think that that might be a bit too much? I mean, sure, God is holy, but is he really so holy that we can't put this box on an ox cart and take it into town? Really? Do we have to have the poles? I mean, God is holy, sure. But let's just say the ox stumbled and the ark wobbled and was about to hit the ground. Surely he would not be so holy that he would mind if I reached out my hand and braced the ark because surely it would be better for me to keep the ark on this ox cart rather than for it to hit the dirt, wouldn't it? As R.C. Sproul once said, Uzzah assumed his hand was holier than the dirt. And he found out otherwise. He reached out his hand and he grabbed the ark. Now, and, and God killed him. As we look around the world, around our culture, as we look inside the church, as we look in the mirror, we find there the condition of Uzzah is universal. You can flip on the news and you can see there are people presuming upon the holiness of God. You can look around the church and you can find people who again presume upon the holiness of God, but you don't have to look that far. You can look in the mirror and you can find People who casually sin against God. In our culture, it's commonplace now to hear people tout God's approval of perversion. Including this week, I heard someone associate the Bible's approval of life-altering surgical procedures on children. And you know the kind I'm talking about. As if God approves of these things. What Bible are you reading, she says. This one. Now, why would they say that? Well, one of two potential reasons. Either they're not paying any attention to what the Bible actually says. Or they think, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. I can make up and attribute God's name to anything and I'll never have to pay for that sin. Presuming upon the holiness of God. Not taking serious the holiness of God. Surely God isn't serious about this whole holiness thing. Surely he will never judge me. But if it was only our culture, that would be sad enough. It's also in our churches in his word, we have everything that is needed for life and godliness. Everything that we need for life and godliness is here in his word. And yet, in our pulpits, we often find it rare that the Bible is actually taught to the people. And far more frequently, what we find is psychological babble that's expounded from what might be called a pulpit. Normally, it's a cafe table or a podium. Why? Because surely this isn't it, right? But what's sadder about that is that in the pews, we find what's often demanded from the preacher is exactly that kind of psychological nonsense. Tell me ten ways to better my marriage. If necessary, sprinkle a few Bible verses in there. Never thinking that that just comes from his head. Not from anything the Lord has actually told us about our marriages. Oh, but then you push into the passages and start to expound on the passages and then it becomes too, too offensive. I don't want any of that. It's in our churches too. The same condition that befell Uzzah is there in our churches. Keep it short. Keep it simple. Not too boring, please. Give me lots of stories. I like stories. They're fun. They're engaging. They're exciting. Tell me some jokes in there, too. 
But it's not just in our pulpits. It's in our own hearts. We find ourselves suffering from Uzzah syndrome, or the human condition, fallen nature, sinfulness. We can be shown clear evidence for what the Bible says and say, yeah, but it doesn't match my experience. I don't really want that. I'm not willing to follow it. We don't even mind missing church. Here today, gone tomorrow, who really cares? Now, there are things on my calendar I will move heaven and earth to meet. I wouldn't dream of missing this or that. Church, optional. If I'm there, I'm there. If you don't see me, you don't see me. We might call ourselves Christians, but then give very little thought from Monday to Saturday about any things of God, and sometimes even on Sunday. Who cares, really? We'll continue in lust and anger and pride and debauchery and drunkenness and lying and and a host of other sins and never really come back to the Lord in repentance and understand what grievousness there is in offending a holy God. But you understand that the tragedy is not just merely sin. It's the assumption that God is not looking at my sin. He doesn't care about little old Uzzah here in Tuscaloosa who's watching the ark fall and just reaches out his hand to grab it. He doesn't care about that, surely. Is God really watching me? Me? No. He's far too concerned with other things to really care about me and my sin. Perhaps if we look hard enough, or not that hard at all, we will see Uzzah staring back at us in the mirror will realize that we're all guilty of making the same kinds of presumptions about God's holiness as Uzzah does here in this split second when he reaches out his hand and touches the ark. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God's holiness is not a trivial matter. But now we see that for those who have a healthy fear of God, God's mercy produces a joyous worship. For those that have a healthy fear of God, God's mercy produces joyous worship. So David realizes that perhaps the, door, the, the Lord does not mean to bless him. So he, he another guy joy, draws a short straw, Obed-Edom, the Hittite. He sends the ark off to him and he says, look, I, I, I don't think we want this here. How can the ark possibly come to me? Remember what happened to the Philistines? They brought the ark in and all of a sudden they all got tumors. I don't want tumors. You want tumors? Nobody wants tumors. Let's let Obed-Edom get the tumors. So they send the ark off to poor old Obed-Edom, who takes the ark in. And we find this in verse 12. It was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the, up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now, interestingly, in this passage here, do you notice that there's no mention of putting the ark on an ox cart? Do you notice that? There's no mention of the ox cart any longer. In fact, we find out in verse 13, look at what it says, and when those who bore the ark, you get what they're doing now? Well, uh, let's go find those poles, shall we? I think, I think maybe this time it doesn't belong in an ox cart. We're going to go ahead and get those poles. That, that word that's used there for bearing the ark is usually meant to carry. So it's amazing what a proper fear of God actually does for people when they consider doing something serious here. How can we please the Lord? Well, maybe we should pay attention to what he's actually said. So what happens then? They grab the ark by the poles. They start to carry it. They walk six steps and then just wait for something terrible to happen. 
and nothing happens, and they realize the Lord has blessed us, that he's not out to curse us, that we need to obey his word. And so what does David do? But he sacrifices an ox. Now the ox isn't good to pull the cart. The ox is just good to die in front of the ark. It's good for sacrifice. So the ark finally makes it into Jerusalem. And there King David in his priestly ephod is dancing before the ark as it comes into the tent that he has prepared for it. And David is playing the role here of both king and priest. He's wearing the ephod like the priest would. He's making sacrifices before the ark of the covenant. And he's also the king. And he's distributing all the spoils to the people. The people are being blessed now by the Lord coming into their presence just like Obed-Edom was before. Except for one person. Here is Michael, the daughter of Saul. She's not so happy. Look at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And then look at verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servant, his servants, female servants, and one of the vulgar, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So she's obviously very concerned with the decorum of the king. You should be much more dignified than this, than to undress yourself in front of all of these female servants that are around you. But I think there's also something a little more going on here than just that. Notice that the, how the author refers to this lady. Three times, actually, refers to her as the daughter of Saul. Did you get it? This is Michael, the daughter of Saul. This is Michael, the daughter of Saul. This is Michael, the daughter of Saul. The last time is in the very last verse. He wants us to remember that she is the daughter of Saul. Now, why would he want us to remember that? Well, when we get to verse 21 and 22, David gives her an explanation for why he is so joyous over the ark coming into his town. Look at what it says in verse 21. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Here's what David is, is saying, essentially. What just happened to me was the most humbling experience of my life to date. I realized my position before the Lord, and here's what else I have realized. By the mere fact that this ark has made it into this city means that God favors me. Now, now we can talk all day about the Lord anointing him through, uh, through Samuel, back in 1 Samuel. And the Lord protecting him in the wilderness as he ran from Saul. The Lord establishing through Jonathan a covenant of protection with David. All of those things are great and all of those things affirm to David time and again, I am with you. The Lord has done that numerous times. None so much as this. It's one thing to be anointed by a prophet or to be confirmed by the son of the king or to be uh, protected by your men or to be sheltered out in captivity and, and out in, in the land, to be protected from the Philistines. It's one thing to have all of that. It's another thing to approach the very feet of God as a sinful man and not die. You understand? So what David is saying here is, who cares what I look like? Do you understand what God has just said about me by the mere fact that the ark was allowed to make it into this town? And we're talking about clothing? Who cares? The holy God of the universe has declared me fit to be king over his people and to bring the ark into this town, and you're worried about clothing? You are insane. 
I'll be even more debased in your eyes than this. You have not seen the, the, the hem of the garment of what I will do for my God who has declared me king over this people, over your father. You are the daughter of Saul, are you not? But when I'm debased, when I am humbled in front of this holy God, do you know what other people around me who also understand His holiness, do you know what they're going to say about me? They're going to say, that's what worship of a holy God actually looks like. Worship of a holy God doesn't look like this. How can worship of a holy God be sad? How can it be emotionless? How can you be called by God's name and come to worship Him and be like this? How? Well, not if you understand what's happened. Not if you understand the kind of favor that rests upon you by Him just merely allowing you into His presence. Do you understand that you're sinful? Do you understand the mercy that has been shown to you? If you understand that, with that kind of humility, how can you not celebrate with joy over what God has done? So I want you to consider for just a second, Christian. I want you to think about the story of Uzzah and the ark coming into Jerusalem. I want you to keep that in mind. I want you to keep in mind everything that's happened in this scene so far. All right? Now, I want us to look at the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, you can turn there. I'd it's going to be on the screen behind you, but I'd rather you see it with your own two eyes on the page of Scripture in front of you. So Matthew 27. Just turn there. I want you to hold in mind all that's happened to Uzzah so far, all that's happened to David, the humility that he's seen, the encounter with a holy God. I want you to, to take note of all that. And now look at Matthew 27, starting in verse 45. And I want you to read this, maybe as you've never had before. Starting in verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. Many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Some of you may have caught the significance of one verse, particularly verse 51 there, when the curtain of the temple is torn in two. I'll give you one guess as to what was behind that curtain. It was the very same Ark of the Covenant that Uzzah reached out his hand and laid hold of and was struck dead many years before. Do you understand what's happening here in the death of Christ is that by virtue of Jesus' atoning work, all of his people have been made clean. 
All of his people have been cleansed. So the very same ark, which was separate from the people, so that only the high priest had access, the same ark that killed people for looking at it, and the same ark that zapped Uzzah for reaching out his hand, is now open to the public. All the people who have been washed by the blood of Jesus are not merely invited to just look at the ark, but to lay hold of it, to embrace it, to now be a part of God's very family, to be brought into the body of Christ. So before, we're asking the question, how holy is God? How sinful are we? We'll touch the ark and find out. And now we're saying, how effective is the blood of Christ to cover my sin? Touch the ark and find out. And what you'll see is that nothing happens. Why? Because Christian, your sin has been atoned for. God can kill you for sins that happen in the future. He's not relegated to things that have happened in the past. He can kill you for being merely human. But all your sin was atoned for, past, present, and future. In fact, you and me, all of our sin was in the future when Christ died. All of it was atoned for. Everything. What is your position now before God? By virtue of the sacrifice, the atoning work of Christ, you are in the family. There is no anger that is to be kindled like there was against Uzzah for touching the ark. There's no anger that he has towards you. It's all been poured out on the shoulders of Christ. It's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now the question, does that reality understanding what's happened now that the curtain has been torn in two, does that produce joy in you? Like David, is there a joy in you over being included in God's family, or is it just ho-hum, it's the normal thing? Come here, sing the songs, they're bland. I pray the prayers, bland. I hear the sermon, boring. Or do you understand what's actually been purchased for you? What you've been brought into? And how, if that's the case, how can you not, having experienced that kind of mercy, not then understand the joy that should be produced by being a member of the body of Christ? You understand that, that if we actually do come into a right understanding of who we are in Christ and what God has done for us through the blood of Christ, it should be the end of all trivial things. We, we shouldn't talk about our relationship with Christ as though it's, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, sure. No. This is the spark for evangelism. Isn't it? Neighbor, lost person, do you understand what I've been given? I want you to have that too. That's the essence of evangelism. It's the spark of right worship. Is understanding what's happened for you on the cross. So the question is, have you really come? I would submit that if your relationship to God is a trivial matter, then you're probably not understanding the gospel. If you're understanding your relationship to God as something that's relatively meaningless, then I'm guessing you probably haven't understood rightly what your sinful condition was. If you look at death, God judging the unbelieving with an eternity in hell as unfair, 
then probably you don't understand the God of the Bible. But if you do, then what you understand is God is inviting you into his body. That God is bringing you into his church and inviting you to lay hold of him. To have eternal life and blessing, but to have him to be brought into the presence of holiness and joy everlasting. And if that's the case, then it's the reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is it not? Let's pray and let's do just that. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be included in your body. It fuels our worship. The very idea that you would die for your enemies and make them your friends. It seems impossible. It seems too good to be true. And yet this is precisely what we have in Christ. So I pray now that we come before you to take, to partake of this bread and this juice. That we are able for even just a moment to grasp what has been done for us in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're moving now into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, and it's incumbent on me, as it is every time we do this, to explain what we're doing and who this is for. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, on the first level, we are very basically remembering the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Exactly what I just talked about. We are remembering that he died for us and that we need his sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice, to be the reason we're included in the body of Christ. But the Lord's Supper is not just a memorial. Many will stop just right there. And that's not only what it is. It's also a mark of identification. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17, The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So taking the cup is a sign. It's not only a, a memorial to you, it's also a sign to everyone around you that you still need this, that you're part of the body of Christ, you're still claiming the blood of Christ, you're still professing that you need the blood of Christ as your atoning sacrifice that grants you everything you have in God. So we're not saying that the bread or the juice physically transforms into anything. That's not what this is about. We're proclaiming this as a memorial and a mark of identification of our fellowship with Him and with each other. But in addition to all of those things, remembering Christ, marking us for identification, Paul goes on to say this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it's an opportunity then to examine ourselves before we partake. So if there's been a time where you have just gone, you know, un, your sin has gone unnoticed. You've just let it pass and you're not thinking about it and you just kind of put it by the wayside. And you're pretending that maybe God in his holiness doesn't really care about that little sin over there. Let's dispel that notion that Christ died because of that sin. So he cares. He does care. And, and what we're doing in taking the Lord's Supper, we're coming before the Lord and we're owning it. We're admitting that we are at fault and that that is indeed sin. So the Lord's Supper is not for those who are curious about Christ. It's not even for those who are leaning towards Christ. Or maybe you've made a private decision that you want to follow Christ. The Lord's Supper is for those who have fully placed their trust and hope in Christ and have gone public with that faith through baptism. So we don't practice infant baptism here. We don't believe that to be baptism. We practice baptism. We call it creedal baptism. It means you've made a confession of faith, a profession of faith, 
The church has acknowledged that and baptized you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we partake in the Lord's Supper. So, if you've not been baptized following your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would ask that you refrain from partaking in the Lord's Supper with us. But if you're a member of another church body and you're here visiting with us, you're more than welcome to partake with us. But in the spirit of sobriety, before we partake, I would like to take just a moment in prayer, private confession of your sin before we partake of the Lord's Supper. If you will, please take the bread out of its container. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he told his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling his disciples that there will come a day when he returns and the kingdom is fulfilled where he will once again pass the elements to all of his disciples, including us. And he'll eat with his people again. And we will feast in the resurrection. But that night, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. With the wine, he, told, he also taught them to look forward to the resurrection. He said, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So when we take this juice, even eat this bread, we're not only remembering the blood that he shed for us on the cross, but we do so knowing that our Lord is fasting from even the fruit of the vine until all of us, his disciples, can join him around the table. So as we take this, we're agreeing together that we long to see that day. That night, however, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be included in your body. We thank you for all that you've done in and through Christ that you have done to us by mercifully raising us from the dead. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive by your mercy and by your grace. And for that, we are eternally grateful. We pray that we would continue to live in light of the calling to which we've been called. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.